and I am excited to do this and glad to be here with all of you tonight. And I know we've still got some people coming in. I will let you know ahead of time that over the next four weeks as we do this series, it is going to be a lot more uh, studious. It's going to be a, a lot more like school is in session, if you will. Now, I have a lot of notes this evening. I'm going to clip along fast. We talked ahead of time about doing some handouts. There was a little technical difficulty, which we're working out right now as we speak. And so hang with me. Probably by break time, there will be notes. So for those of you who like to take notes, I will have handouts for everybody. Going forward for the next couple weeks, there will also be handouts. You're going to hear a lot of vocabulary terms. There is no test. You don't have to memorize anything. This is just general information that we're making available to everyone. Okay? And so if you want handouts, those will be available to you shortly. But let's go ahead and dive right in. Tonight, we're going to talk in our first lesson, as you can see up on the screen, the slide there. This whole series is on understanding your Bible. And we're going to start tonight by just talking about what the Bible is and its background. So we're going to talk a little bit about the text of the Bible, some of its translation, and then canon. There's a fun word that we'll get to towards the end of the evening. When you think of your Bible, you, you've got a Bible. Probably most of you have multiple Bibles. This is a book to us. It is a collection of writings. But this took an incredible amount of work. Godly inspired divine work in order for this to come together. This is a collection of 66 different individual books and letters. It was written by 40, maybe a little more than 40 people. We're not exactly sure. And it was collected over the course of about 2,000 years. There is no other book like this on the planet. So we're talking about something that took 2,000 years to put together. 66 individual works, probably 40, 41 different authors. So again, nothing quite like it. The Old Testament was written 3,500 to 2,400 years ago. And we know that the New Testament was completed sometime in the 90s AD, maybe by 100 AD at the latest. And sometime, a long time ago, we lost all of the original autographs. When I say autograph, I mean the original copy. We do not have the original copy of Isaiah or Luke or Matthew or the original copy of Joel. Long, long ago, those were lost, probably destroyed. And I think that's the way that God intended it. So that way they wouldn't become idols in and of themselves. Can you imagine if somewhere at some location in the world, the original copy of Genesis was preserved? It would be enshrined. Religious groups would be fighting over it. It would very quickly turn into idol worship. So I think God purposely allowed the original copies to disappear, be destroyed, burned up, deteriorate, whatever it may be. The importance was that the word of God was preserved, not the original copy itself. When we talk about the Bible, it's also not just one language. We're going to get a little bit to translation later tonight. We read the Bible in English, but it was not originally written in English. In fact, the Bible wasn't even originally written in one language. When we talk about the Bible, we're actually talking about three different languages. To start with, and I've got an example of some verses up here on the screen, most of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Hebrew is a language that's rich in imagery. It's a very descriptive language. It's vivid. It's personal. It's well-suited for stories. It's well-suited for poetry and for different metaphors. 
The majority of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Let me give you an example. Here is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things that you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. So, when you read that passage, do we really think that wisdom is a woman, and that this woman is holding long life in one hand and wealth in the other hand? No, we understand it's metaphoric. It's rich, symbolic language. Hebrew as a language is very suited for that sort of thing. It was a very poetic language. In a couple weeks, we'll talk about genre, and we'll get to the idea that much of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, was actually written in poetry. A huge chunk of the Old Testament in Hebrew is written in a poetic form. The other language that we find in the Old Testament is Aramaic. This was the language of the Syrians. It was a Semitic language related to Hebrew. There are a few parts of Ezra. There is one verse in Jeremiah. And Daniel chapter 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the common language in the Middle East by the time of Jesus. It was the language of the Babylonians, which conquered much of what we call the Middle East when their empire was at its height. And at the time of the New Testament, when Jesus was on the earth, Aramaic was the common language that everyone spoke throughout the Middle East. In fact, by the time of Jesus, many of the Jews did not read and write in Hebrew. Everyone would have spoken Aramaic. They would have also spoken some Greek because that was the common business language. And then the highly educated Jews would have been the ones who could also read and write in Hebrew. Everyday conversation as Jesus was interacting with people would have been in Aramaic. And we do have a few examples of this, hints of this, that we see preserved in the New Testament. For example, Mark chapter 5, verse 41 says, Then he took the child by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Talitha kumi is not Hebrew, it's Aramaic. Again, that was the common language that everyone spoke in the Middle East at the time. So we know that Jesus, the disciples, those that he was interacting with, they were speaking Aramaic. And yet when you read the New Testament, as most of you probably already know, the New Testament was not written in Aramaic. The New Testament was written in Greek. Here's an example, just a slide showing you some of a Greek text. So why was the New Testament written in Greek? The Greek of the New Testament, which is called Koine Greek, was a commerce language. It was the business language of the Roman Empire. So you've got all these different cultures, all these different language groups across the Roman Empire, but the one language that everybody spoke if they wanted to be able to conduct business was Greek. So that was the most common language at the time of the New Testament. And since the New Testament was written not just for Jews, but it was written so that everyone could hear the gospel message, everyone could hear the, new, the good news about Jesus, 
It makes sense that the disciples chose to write the New Testament in Greek because it was the most common language at that time. Greek is very well suited for what we see in the New Testament because while Hebrew is full of metaphor and it's a very vivid image language, very suited for poetry, very suited for songs, Greek is very precise. Again, think a business language. It's very conceptual, it's intellectual, and it's a highly inflective language. What does inflection mean? What it means is that it packed a lot of information and a lot of different concepts into very specific individual words, and you could change the meaning of that word by changing the grammatical form of the word. So it's very, very flexible. You could change a few things about a word and make it mean something else, but at the same time, it was a very precise language because these words had very, very structured, defined meanings. So when we think about the New Testament, especially when we think about doctrine, we think about Paul's letters, Greek is very well suited for that because it's a very precise, very structured language. One final comment about Greek. You will read, if you are familiar with, say, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, perhaps somewhere in your high school English class, once upon a time, you had to read an excerpt from the Iliad and the Odyssey. These are classical Greek works. They would have been written in what's called High Greek or Classic Greek or its proper name, Attic Greek. The New Testament was a later development. All of those works are older than the New Testament. So by the time we get to the New Testament, the common business language of the day was something called Koine Greek. It was a simplified form of Greek, unlike the classical Greek. So they were similar, but they're not quite the same. If you studied languages and you learned to read classical Greek, you would be able to read the New Testament. If you studied Koine Greek, in order to read the New Testament, you would not be able to read classical Greek. It's more complex than that. So having said that, I think we have a little guest appearance. Will not. I'm telling you it will so. I'm telling you that Codex will be a great advancement for the Bible. That lousy substitution for a scroll will never work. It works. It will destroy the church. The scrolls work for Isaiah, they work for Joel. It worked for Jeremiah, and now you and a bunch of your young upstarts that want to start writing the holy word of God on a codex. But with codex, we can keep all the books of the Bible in one place where they'll be easier to access. And when Isaiah wrote his majestic words, he didn't plan on them, he didn't plan on them to be in the mix of a dozen other prophets like a bunch of sheep in a ravine. But just imagine being able to read passages in the book of Romans and then being able to compare those with similar passages in the book of Psalms. I just opened up the two scrolls together like they have been for hundreds of years. They worked, worked for the Roman church that Paul wrote to. Why shouldn't we act like we're any better? We wouldn't be acting like we're any better. We'd just be changing where the words are written. We wouldn't be changing the words themselves. Besides that, Codex would make the Bible easier to store. With all the books in one single unit, we wouldn't need a whole lot of extra space. Oh, so you're saying the Word of God doesn't deserve the extra space, huh? 
Now, I'm not saying that. I'm just trying to show you how useful Codex will be. Will be, will not be. Not while I'm still alive to stop this abomination. You and your young scholars can talk to your blue in the face. It's not going to change the fact that the Bible's been written on scrolls for hundreds of years, and it always will be. But you have to see how useful Codex will be. We'll be able to find the sections of the Bible in a whole lot quicker. We won't have to roll out an entire scroll to get to the end of 2 Peter. The sections weren't meant to be found quickly. When Peter wrote the words of God, he meant them to be, he, he meant them, he, the words of God, he meant them to be taken in context, not scattered willy-nilly. <laughs> but, but, but you have to see how Codex will make the Bible easier to handle. You won't need a great big table to roll out an entire scroll. With Codex, you can sit down and open the Bible on your lap. The Bible shouldn't be easy to handle. The words of God should be, be a sacred experience. A little extra difficulty in reading the words will make it be more special. Yeah, you might be right, but it'll also make it harder for the people to read too. And that won't work. I don't care what you say. Will do. I don't be so over dramatic. It will not. Will do. No more. <laughs> Kind of hard to argue with each other when you're too busy laughing. <laughs> so we were talking as we were preparing for this, and it was actually Pastor Stephen's idea to do this, and we thought, wouldn't it be funny, can you imagine somewhere a thousand years ago in some monastery, you've got a group of monks, and they're arguing with each other, and one of them is insistent, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, they have to be written on scrolls. And some other monk is saying, no, no, we can use this new thing called a codex. It's going to revolutionize the way things are written. And they're concerned and they're back and forth. And it sounds silly to us today because for the most part, nobody uses scrolls. And we don't even use a codex or by its modern turn, a book as much anymore. Now we're reading it on our phones and our iPads. Can you imagine if they came across something like that? Now why point this out? What we're trying to demonstrate by that little skit is what's important is that the Word of God has been preserved and we can read it for ourselves. And over time, the method in which it's stored has been changed multiple times. And if we're not careful, maybe we don't get hung up of the idea of a scroll versus a codex, but we, we get our favorite way in which something is supposed to happen. And then somebody goes and they mess with that. And then all of a sudden it becomes a religious issue, right? Now it's a divine issue because this is not the way that God intended it and it's not the way that it's supposed to be done when really what's important is that we make sure the Word of God is what comes across. I'll give you another example of that, something that we often take for granted. When the scriptures were originally written, there were not chapter and verse divisions. Chapter and diverse divisions actually came hundreds and hundreds of years later. They are very helpful. It allows us to be able to find scripture very quickly. It allows us to be able to Bible quiz. 
But chapter and verse divisions were not originally part of the text of the Word of God. And so with that in mind, just a word of caution as you're reading your Bible, you cannot use chapter and verse divisions as an interpretation piece. In other words, you can't say, well, you know, in this chapter it says this, and so when we get over to this chapter, it means... Now, you can relate parts of a text to each other, but the chapter and verse divisions are not original with Scripture. So do not assume just because a verse ends that the thought has ended, because all of that was added much later on. Chapter and verse divisions for the Old Testament were developed by the Ben Asher rabbinic family probably somewhere around 900 A.D., so again, even for the Old Testament, you didn't find chapter and verse divisions until 1,100 years ago. And for the New Testament, for the New Testament, there were no chapter and verse divisions until Robert Stephanus added them in 1551. So the New Testament didn't have chapter and verse divisions until less than 500 years ago. Printed type did not become popular in the West until Johann Gutenberg invented movable metal type in the year 1456. Until this time, think about it, until just less than 600 years ago, all copies of the Bible were handwritten. Again, we take this for granted. Now we even have it in digital format. You can pull it up instantly. How long do you think it would take to handwrite your Bible? So, this was a very special, very sacred, very large, and quite honestly, very expensive work to reproduce because everything had to be handwritten. If you've got your notes, you may see some vocabulary terms in there. A manuscript is a handwritten document. So, if you're doing any studies and you hear the term manuscript, what that refers to is a handwritten document. And originally, as you heard our monks arguing, they were written on scrolls. Scroll was a long piece of papyrus or parchment, and it would be rolled up for storage. If you're reading in biblical studies, if you're reading anything about interpreting your Bible, you may come across a term that says autograph. An autograph is the original copy of a manuscript. So a manuscript is a handwritten document, an autograph was the original copy. Manuscripts were eventually replaced by this revolutionary new idea called a codex. A codex is where they took the parchment or they took the papyrus, they still were handwriting, but then they would sew one edge of it together and add it to a spine. And the idea was that once you had a codex, then something could lay open flat and you could carry it in a much easier to use format. Some copying was done by private individuals. If you had a lot of money, you could pay to have your own copy of the scriptures. Keep in mind, these are handwritten documents. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to handwrite out, think something like the entire Bible. It would have been hugely expensive. But for the most part, individuals did not own copies of the Bible. If you were a Jew, the local synagogue would have a copy of the scriptures. In the New Testament, your church, your local church, might have a collection of some of the bits and pieces of Scripture, but probably not all of it. The professionals, because it was a professional trade, and people studied for this for years and years and years, a professional who made copies of the Scriptures was called a scribe. 
And we hear that term in the New Testament because we find Jesus having arguments with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. The scribes were the professional copyists. And we think, okay, these people, they wrote scriptures. So what does that mean? These people would have trained for years and years and years to do this. Not everybody in the ancient world could read and write. So you have to be literate. You have to have precise, very good handwriting. A scribe would work in something called a scriptoria or a scriptorium, where there would be a master scribe who would have a copy, and he would read aloud very, very slowly, and then the other scribes would continue to make their copies based on what he said. And they would stop every so often, and they would repeat back what had been written. They would count the number of words to make sure they matched. They would count the number of letters to make sure that they matched. They would count it line by line to make sure everything matched up exactly. And if it did not, for the Jews who were legendary for this, these were the most precise record-keeping people on the planet in the ancient world. If it did not line up perfectly, they threw it away and started over. They did not want any errors or mistakes to be introduced into their sacred scriptures. So you understand it was a very involved, very slow, very methodical process. And if something went wrong in the process, they'd start over. Let's talk a little bit about the New Testament. This, by the way, I'll just leave this up for a moment. Here's a picture of a piece of papyrus. Papyrus was a, almost like a grass. It was technically a sedge, a water reed plant that grew on the banks of rivers. And they would cut it in strips, and then they would braid it together, and then pound it flat and let it dry. And then that dried grass, almost matte-looking thing is what we call papyrus. And this is what scripture was written on for much of the ancient world. The Old Testament text that we have today is courtesy of these Hebrew scribes, who I've already described, were very, very careful in how they preserved the scriptures. About 1000 AD, Jewish scholars began producing a standard edition of the Old Testament text. If you walked into a bookstore today and you wanted to buy a copy of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, and you wanted to buy a copy in Hebrew, there is one version. It is the standardized version. It has been in place. It is the only version, for the most part, that has been used since 1000 AD. And the proper name for that is the Masoretic Text. You do not have to remember any of these terms. But for those of you who love information, you can see all that in the handouts and in the notes. But as I mentioned, by the time we get to Jesus in the New Testament, much of Jewish culture could no longer read and write in Hebrew. The common language of the day was Aramaic. And the common business language of the day was Greek. So only those who were trained in a synagogue could actually read and write in Hebrew. So what is it that the average Jew would hear on any given Sabbath when they went to the synagogue and they were listening to the scriptures? They would actually hear the scriptures in Greek. The Greek copy of the Old Testament, and this is a term you may have heard before, it's a term you will likely come across multiple times, is the Septuagint. Sometimes you'll see that abbreviated as LXX, that's the Roman numeral for 70. If you ever see, if you're reading something about the Bible and it references a translation and it says LXX as its abbreviation, that is the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, we have many more copies than we do of the Old Testament. 
And so when we talk about the New Testament, it's kind of grouped into several different studies. One, we have what we call papyrus. And you can see a picture of that up on the top. These are the oldest manuscripts that we have. And the oldest one that we have now, remember, the originals were probably destroyed and forgotten long ago. We do have copies, bits and pieces, broken fragments of papyrus that best that they can date them go back to about 125 AD. So that puts them in less than 100 years of the original autograph. After papyrus, the next most common, and here's just a picture of text, it's a little blurry, but you have something called a majuscule. This would have been by the time it had gone from papyrus to parchment, and they called it a majuscule because it's the New Testament, and it was written in all capital letters. And if you look at it, again, there's no chapter-verse separations. It would have just been a block column of text in all capital letters, for the most part without spaces. So things that we take for granted, like line breaks, commas, periods, other punctuation, putting space between different sections of scripture, having chapters and verse division. These were all innovations that came later on. When the New Testament was originally written, it looked more like this. It was just a block column of text, all in capital letters with practically no breaks. So it would have been a little harder to read. Let me show you a little more innovation that came later. You started with majuscules and then they went to minuscules. This has lowercase letters. Now we have upper and lowercase letters. So you can see kind of the development from here to here. It gets a little easier to read. And keep in mind, this is still a handwritten document. And then finally, our other preservation that we have, how we know that we've got good copies of the New Testament, was in something called a lectionary. A lectionary was not scripture itself. It was not a copy of the Bible, but they were like Sunday school sermons and devotionals. But the majority of these ancient documents are really just a repeat of the scriptures. So in addition to the copies we have in papyrus and parchment of the New Testament scripture, we have quite a few preserved lectionaries. And the bulk of the lectionary it would be a reading, a devotional reading for the day in the church service. But the bulk of that reading would have been a chunk of scripture. So you think about a codex that's full of these devotions and 80% of that devotion is just scripture. And so it's actually a pretty good preservation of the scriptures itself. In addition to that, and you can see this in the notes, I'm gonna kind of gloss over it a little quicker. We have something called patristic quotations. Now that sounds like a mouthful, what am I saying? We have lots of letters preserved from the ancient world. We have lots of early church writings where you have different bishops and you have different clergymen, different pastors who are writing letters back and forth to each other. And as they wrote these letters, they would quote scripture. And so as you're reading these letters that have been preserved, again, we have more copies of scripture. And so you have different ways in addition to the New Testament text itself in which scripture was preserved. And then finally, in addition to the Greek itself, we have copies of the New Testament that were written in other ancient languages. Probably within 100 years of the New Testament being completed, it was already being translated into other languages besides Greek, so that way other people could read it. The earliest versions of the New Testament that we have outside of Greek were the Syriac version, what some people refer to as Christian Aramaic, 
and then Coptic, which is the language that the Egyptians used. After Coptic, Latin. So again, within a few hundred years of the Bible being completed, we already see it being translated from Greek into Syriac, into Coptic, into Latin. And about 1,400 years after that, English. So English is a much, much later development. So let's talk about translation for a moment, because today, probably every one of us is reading our Bible in English. Maybe some of you are reading it in Spanish or some other language, but for the most part, we're reading it in English. So occasionally, I get asked this fun question. What is the best English translation? How many of you have ever asked that question or thought that question or wanted to ask that question, right? What is the best English translation? So let's park here for a little bit and talk about what is the best English translation. And by the smile on my face, you can probably guess where I'm going already. How many of you here tonight speak more than one language? Just raise your hand if you speak more than one language. We have a few people here on a given Sunday morning here. We'd have a lot more people who speak more than one language. Anybody who speaks more than one language already knows this, but I'll let you in on a little secret for those of you who, like me, only speak English. Language is not math. You're shocked, aren't you? Language is not math. And what I mean by that is there is not one-to-one -one correspondence. You cannot take one word in a first language and then automatically assume that you will find its equivalent word in the second language. That's not real. Words are defined by their context, they're defined by their language, and when you go from one language into another language, you have to do some interpretive gymnastics, if you will. You have to make an effort to go from the first language to the second language. It's not like math where you could get Google Translate and you could just automatically find, okay, this word in Greek equals this word in English. In reality, it's like this word in Greek equals these 16 words in English and it depends on where it was used in a sentence and what its original context was. So how do you know which one? It, it doesn't work that way. So language gets very complex very quickly. It's not a bad thing. It just is. So language has to be translated and it has to be defined by its concepts. Very basic vocabulary words. Fish, bread, horse, donkey. Things like these. Your basic vocabulary words, you're going to find a word in one language and then find its equivalent word in another language. But you start getting into anything with any level of complexity, and it doesn't work just to simply take words and find its English equivalent and translate it over. So, before we get any farther in a discussion about translations, understand no matter what you think the best translation is, no matter how literal, because we hear people talk about that, right? Well, this is a very literal translation. It's word for word. That's actually not real. There's no such thing as a word for word translation because you can't go word for word from one language into another. And if you could go word for word from one language into another, it wouldn't make sense. It would be jumbled, the grammar wouldn't match. Something, when I was in school studying Greek that takes a long time for English speakers, our sentences are defined by their word order. Word order does not matter in Greek. Word order does not matter in Greek. It's a reflective language. 
what tells you the subject of the sentence, what tells you the verbs, what tells you all of the other pieces of the sentence is the ending of each word in Greek. So you read the words and then how they end, how their reflexive ending is on the word, that's what defines its place in the sentence and how it would come into English. So if you ever hear somebody talking about, you know, in the literal word order, you may hear this in a Bible study. I was looking at this and the literal word order says, well, that's great. I'm glad you looked at that, but that actually doesn't mean anything because word order doesn't matter in Greek like it does in English. So just because you saw this word before this word in a certain verse in Greek, that doesn't necessarily mean anything when it comes to interpretation. It's defined by its context. So translating information from one language into another language gets really complex really quickly. In fact, sometimes even within one language, you read something and you think that it needs to be translated. So let's do a little exercise. I'm going to throw a passage up on the screen in English, and I want you to read it and tell me. Well, you don't have to tell me. You just read it for yourself. See what you get out of this. This is English. Anybody having a little trouble with this? Why? Because it's Middle English. This is Geoffrey Chaucer. Now, 600 years ago, we would have been able to read this, if you could read. That, we take that for granted, too. Most of the world was not literate at that time. But language evolves. This is English, but it's English 600 years ago. English doesn't even look like this anymore. So let's try this again. Now which column can you read? You can read the column on the right, because now we've gone from Middle English into Modern English. So even within one language, we see development, we see changes. It takes interpretive effort. So imagine going from a language in a document written on the other side of the world 3,500 years ago in a completely different context, in a radically different culture. And now you're taking that language and you're trying to put it into modern English so that way people can understand it. Or if 3,500 years seems too long, that's okay. We'll leave the Old Testament behind and we'll just work with the New Testament. Now we're talking about an ancient language that's only 2,000 years old and doesn't look that way anymore in a still radically different context and culture. So even the New Testament is still 2,000 years old. So again, there's a lot of interpretive elements that go into it. And depending on what you're trying to do with a translation, determines how you translate something. So is it better to be as literal as possible when you translate something? Or is it better to try and get the ideas and the meaning and the thoughts out of the translation? Again, it depends on what you're trying to do. What this comes down to, and you'll see this in your notes if you've got a set of the handouts, is two different translation philosophies. And this really is kind of an either-or, and most of the time it's actually a mix of the two. This is not a right or wrong. It's a what-are-you-trying-to-get-across kind of question. And it's a question of formal equivalence or dynamic equivalence. 
formal equivalence is the practice of translating a text as close as you possibly can, going word for word. It should be noted already, like I've said, no English translation is truly word for word. The limitation of going with formal equivalence, or sometimes maybe you hear the term complete equivalence, is that meaning is not always conveyed best word for word. For readers who are not familiar with a biblical expression, um, people who don't know these Bible terms that we've become used to, it could be confusing. Let me give you an example. 1 Kings 2.10, and you'll see it when I put up some parallel translations in a moment. The King James Version says, So David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. David slept with his fathers. What does that mean? It means David died. Fathers, plural. What are we talking about? Ancestors. Father, grandfather, great-grandfather, etc. But again... Even within English, you've had to do an interpretive step to know what that means. David slept with his fathers. So that's closer word for word to what the Hebrew says, but it doesn't really fully get across the meaning of what was there. The meaning is that David died and he was buried with his ancestors. You can get there and there's value in being precise. But there are times when there's more value in trying to get the thought across more than trying to get something word for word. And if you lean more on the thought side of the spectrum, now we're talking about what we refer to as dynamic equivalence. Dynamic equivalence is the translation of, it's the philosophy, I should say, of translating something thought for thought rather than word for word. Your goal with dynamic equivalence is to get the message across. You're trying to get all of the meaning conveyed. A dynamic equivalent translation tries to have the same impact on a modern English audience that the original language would have had on its audience thousands of years ago. These translations tend to do better when you read them out loud. They make narrative or story sections sound closer to the original form. And they do a great job of conveying especially the poetry that we see throughout the Old Testament. The main challenge with a dynamic equivalent translation or a thought-for-thought -thought translation is that when you're doing thought-for-thought, -thought, sometimes you lose some of the precision. So when you do a formal equivalent, you keep the precision. You're trying to be as precise as you can. That's really good for in-depth Bible study but it makes it harder to get all of the meaning out of it without doing a few more interpretive steps. On the other hand, you could do dynamic equivalent, thought for thought, and now you're really getting the meaning out of the scripture, but you've lost some of the precision of what it's saying. It's an interpretive mix. You can't do both at the same time. And honestly, every translation, no matter what translation it is, does a mix of both. There are places where it's going to be as close as it can word for word, and there are going to be places where word for word is not going to make sense, so it's going to have to do thought for thought. Some translations lean more towards the idea of doing lots of thought for thought, while other translations lean more towards the idea of trying to be as precise as they can. Let's see if this will play. Some, there we go. Let's give an example of this. So here's 1 Corinthians 15.55. King James Version. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? This is my favorite verse in the King James Version. I love the poetic justice of the way it sounds. It sounds 
very Shakespearean, if you will. There's something that's been preserved of that majesty of English when it was at its high point, and there's value to that. You can read it in the other translations that I put up there. Let's do another verse. How about Romans 7:6? Net, New English translation. But now we have been released from the law because we have died to what controlled us, so that we may serve in the new life under the Spirit and not under the old written code. So this is a translation that still leans more towards the word for word, but you can see the language here is very precise. Doesn't sound like the King James Version, but it does a pretty good job of getting the thought across while still being as careful and precise word for word as it can. Romans 13, 14 in the NIV, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, now not quite as much word for word, leaning a little more towards thought for thought. I'd put the NIV if we were looking at a spectrum probably somewhere in the middle. And let's look at one more. How about 1 Kings 2.10, New Living Translation? This is the one I said earlier. Then David died and was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. If you look at the four translations up there, of the four, the New Living Translation is the plainest but also the easiest to read in this case, as far as read it and understand what it is you're saying. So again, it's a, it's a trade-off. What are you trying to accomplish in the translation? A moment ago, I referenced the idea of a spectrum, and if we've got formal equivalence on one end and dynamic equivalence on the other end, this is not a hard science. I put this together, okay? This is my best guesstimate, so please, if you disagree with it, that's fine. I'm just giving you an idea of the spectrum. On the formal equivalence, you have an inner linear. An inner linear is where you've got the actual original text, whether it's Hebrew or Greek, and then below each Greek or Hebrew word, you have its English equivalent, followed probably by the New American Standard, English Standard Version, King James, Revised King James, uh, uh, Revised Standard Version, excuse me, New King James, New Revised Standard Version. Kind of in the middle would be the NIV, trying to split the balance between the two IDs ideologies. Moving farther towards dynamic equivalent, you've got something like the New Living Translation, and then Contemporary English Version, and then something like the Message. So again, just trying to give you kind of a range. All of these are valid. All of these have value. But they're trying to accomplish something a little bit different in the way that they approach it. So choosing a Bible translation. Now that I've said all of this, Let's get back to our question. What's the best Bible translation, right? When you're deciding what Bible translation to use, a formal equivalent translation is probably the best choice if you're going to do a lot of in-depth study. You want to be very careful with what you're doing. You're doing doctrinal study. You're trying to decide what this means. The precision of something that's more formal takes a little more work when you read it, but it's probably best for doctrinal studies. However, a dynamic equivalent translation is a great choice for just your daily personal reading, for your own devotion time. The emotional impact of Scripture, I believe, comes stronger in a dynamic equivalent translation. A decision about which translation to use is not really a question of which is the better translation. It's more a question of what am I trying to do right now? What's the need that I have with this translation? 
So words like better, best, etc., those are really subjective words. And if you've listened to what I've said over the last five minutes, I didn't endorse any one translation because I don't. I personally don't feel that any one translation is quote unquote the best translation. Um, anybody do building or construction? I know Gustavo does. Anybody else have any experience building anything, even if it's at home? Okay, Mike, do you own more than one hammer? Yeah, of course. Do you use the same hammer for every job? Is a sledgehammer the best idea for everything you're going to use? No, that sounds ridiculous, right? We'd laugh at that. Of course, you wouldn't expect a carpenter to show up to a job site with his favorite five-pound sledge. He's like, this baby, it'll do everything I need it to do, <laughs> okay? If you're gonna smash everything, yeah. <laughs> you don't build furniture with a five-pound sledgehammer, okay? So why do we get this weird idea like, this is the best translation, this accomplishes everything I needed to do? I encourage all of you, I implore you to read more than one translation. They have different values. It's like having different kinds of hammers for different purposes. So which is the best translation? It's the translation that helps you with whatever you're trying to do at that time. This is really about your reading purpose. Are you trying to do in-depth study? Or is it a devotional quality where you just want the, the scriptures to speak to you? And I think that's a good place to go ahead and have everybody stand up, take a break, stretch. We'll go ahead and set a five-minute timer. There we go. Not a hill they want to die on. All right. I'm going to switch to this mic just because I want to make things. You still hear me? All right. So I was talking to Owen on the break, and he was telling me that when he was 13 and had his bar mitzvah in the synagogue, they still on special occasions would pull out the scroll. And so he actually read from the scroll in his local synagogue at his bar mitzvah. So I said, for the most part, they're not used today. Let me put a caveat on that. There are places, and he even said it's pulled out for special occasions on any given Sabbath. Regularly, you're reading from a codex or a book, if you will. At home, devout Orthodox Jews are still going to be reading from a book version they do still exist. There are still scrolls around. It's not something that was lost in antiquity. But carrying a 45-pound scroll that's this wide under your arm everywhere you go would be a lot more work than carrying this. And it's certainly a whole lot more work than it is carrying this. So times change. Method changes. But what's important is that the Word of God is what has been preserved. And we still have that. I was also just talking to Elder briefly on the break as we were ending. I know that 
I was kind of covering that a little bit quickly. And when we get towards the end of tonight, I will go ahead and take a time for a little bit of question and answers for some of you, if you'd like to go further on that. If you have more questions and maybe you'd rather not ask it in a group setting and you'd rather ask me one-on-one, you are certainly welcome to do that. I recognize that Bible translation is a contentious topic in certain places. As Rachel and I have traveled in ministers, we've been in environments where I was told specifically that I had to preach out of fill-in-the-blank version. I've been in other environments, such as right here with our pastor, where he doesn't care what translation you use when you're teaching and preaching. That's not something that's as significant to him as long as you are still conveying the Word of God. Translation philosophy is a highly debated hot topic for certain people. They feel very, very passionately about one translation or another. I am not trying to tell you that one translation is better than another, that you should only read one translation or anything like that. Again, if you have questions about it or want to talk further, you're welcome to talk to me after this. My point is that different translations serve different purposes, and they have different values. Just like a builder would not have one hammer, I personally feel that you would benefit by having more than one translation in your home when you read your scripture. We're very blessed today. You can pick up something like YouVersion or other Bible apps that are free on your phone, and you will immediately have access to 20 different English translations at no cost to you. And so it benefits you to read the scriptures in different translations over time and allow them to come alive. One other comment on this, and then I'll move on to other things. The other thing that I've come across at times is this idea that somehow certain translations are like purposely trying to thwart the word of God, or they're trying to, you know, manipulate scripture or make something doctrinal uh, change and shift with the way that they've worded something. It has been my personal experience looking at this very closely for many years that I do not see translations that are trying to purposely corrupt the scriptures or trying to hide some certain doctrinal element. There is no grand conspiracy by any translation group out there to somehow change the word of God. Most of the time, in fact, I'm certain almost always what you've got is men and women who are very, very dedicated who highly revere the Word of God, who have spent years and years studying and preparing, and they may have a different idea about how to go about it. The translation committee may have a different philosophy on what it is they're trying to accomplish with that translation, but there's nothing subversive going on. I don't think you should be afraid of using different translations. But again, having said all of that, if you have questions about this, and you'd like to talk to me afterwards, I'd be more than happy to talk to any of you, whether it's tonight or some other night, if you have questions about fill-in-the-blank translation or something you read somewhere or somebody said this or that about a translation and what about, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I can't and do not have the time to go deeply in depth into that here, but that is available to you. If you'd like to make use of that, I'd be happy to talk to any of you. So we talked a little bit about the text of the Bible, that we had it in Greek, and we have it in Aramaic, and we have the Old Testament in Hebrew, and then we talked a little bit about this idea of translation, how it came to us in English, 
And so the third area that we're going to go tonight is we're going to talk a little bit about canon, and then I'm going to open it up for questions afterwards. We can take a few minutes to do some Q&A. And I know that we talked about this whole series about how to understand your Bible. Tonight, I will readily admit, we're laying groundwork. It's just making sure we're kind of all on the same page and we've got some understanding of where our scriptures came from and how they got to us. Starting next week, I'm definitely going to dive into and get a lot more in-depth with different interpretation tools and techniques and ways that you can be using to look at your Bible and things to help you in understanding what it is you're reading. I just wanted to take this first evening and kind of get set up so we're all on the same page and we have an appreciation of where the scriptures came from and how much it took for them to get to us. So let's go back and let's talk about this idea of canon. And what is it when we say canon? When I say canon, here's what I'm referring to. The Bible contains 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, and 27 in the New Testament. But how do we know which books slash letters should be included in the Bible? How do we know that it's these 66 books that God intended to preserve as his message for humanity? These are fair questions. Anybody ever thought about this? Ever questions about that? We were just... I think on our way here, and my daughter asked me a question, you know, how do we know that this is God's word and it's true, and how do we know these books? So these are very common questions. They're valid questions, important questions. And when we talk about this, what we're talking about is the idea of canon. And when we say canon, what we're referring to is the list of books that have been accepted as Scripture. And I could, and you will see in your notes, I've got probably a page or so worth of notes that's going to walk through some terms. There are some different things and vocabulary words that you'll see there. And I could walk all of that through with you. Or instead, I could turn the mic over for a few minutes to some guests who I think will be doing a better job at giving you a brief overview of what canon is. This is Buck Denver, and I've got news for you! Genesis! We're not done. But before we jump in, it's time to answer our big question! It's time for Big Questions with Buck Denver! Uh, yes. Thank you. You're welcome! <clears throat> Today's big question, who picked the books to be in the Bible? Who picked the books to be in the Bible? Uh, thank you. Never mind. Sunday school lady, what do we know? Oh, that's a great question, Buck. First, we need to learn a new word, and the word is... Canon! Oh, I've got a cannon and I like to shoot. It's really big and black, but I think it's kind of cute. It makes a big noise in the middle of the night, and it's really very handy in a pirate fight. <laughs> Hello, my cannon. I've got a cannon in um, a... No, Captain Pete. You mean cannon with two ends in the middle. We're talking about cannon with one end in the middle. 
got a cannon with just one N. I still like to shoot it, but never at a friend. It uses lots of powder and... No, wait, Captain Pete, that's still a cannon with two N's. The word cannon comes from a Greek word that means rule or standard. The Old Testament canon is the official list of books that were accepted as God's inspired word. Same with the New Testament canon. If a book was up to the standard, it was accepted into the canon and ended up in the Bible we've got today. Now, the Old Testament canon was put together by Jewish leaders before the birth of Jesus. The stories of Israel passed down from the time of Moses and the king and prophets were written down and collected and then, starting about 500 years before Jesus, organized into books. Jewish teachers, called rabbis, took God's word very seriously and carefully discussed which books were inspired by God and which books were just interesting books of Jewish history. We believe the final list of inspired books was set by about 140 B.C. And those are the books we have in our Bibles today. Now, of course, the New Testament canon, or list of inspired books, wasn't determined by Jewish rabbis, but rather by the leaders of the early Christian church. But, of course, now we're talking about church history, and no one knows more about church history than a pirate. What? Oh, that's me. Oh, wait a minute. Let me change sets. The story of the great I am such a mystery from Jesus Christ to Billy Graham, a pirate's guide to church history. <laughs> I'm Captain Pete, and this is a pirate's guide to church history. You know about Jesus way back in the beginning, and you know about Billy Graham here in modern times, but what happened in the middle? Right? In the middle. In the middle. Me and my pirate parrot, Reginald. That's me. That's me. Yeah, I know. We're here to tell you stories from the middle. So here we go! Three sixty-seven A.D. was a special year. What's so special about it? Did they invent zippers? No, that was much later. Let's start a little earlier. Jesus died and rose again around 30 A.D. By 95 A.D., just 65 years later, all the writings of the New Testament had been completed and were being passed from church to church as Christianity spread. How? By parrot? No, mostly people walking from town to town. But new writings kept popping up, and some of them were a little wacky. What do you mean? Well, they didn't agree with the old writings. Sometimes people wrote something and said it was from a famous apostle like John or Paul, when it really wasn't. Right? They lied? Yeah, it was getting very confusing. So the leaders of the church decided they needed an official list, or a canon, of the New Testament, just like the Jewish canon of the Old Testament. So they came up with a a test. A test? I hate tests. They give me headaches. Yeah, well, this one was important. First, they asked if the writing had come from an apostle, someone who knew Jesus, or from a close friend of an apostle. Second, did the writing agree with what the apostles and the early church leaders taught about Jesus? That makes sense. Yeah, remember there were still people alive who had known Jesus when these books were written. So if a new writing said crazy stuff about Jesus, there were people alive who knew it was wrong. 
and third was the writing already accepted and used by the whole church. If a writing passed all three tests, it was in the cannon. Right? I dropped a bag of cookies in a cannon once. I'll drop you in a cannon. By 200 AD, everyone agreed on 21 of the 27 books. By 240, they agreed on all but four. By 300, only Hebrews and Revelation were still being discussed. They talked about this for 100 years? They must have been tired. It was different people talking at different times. And finally, that brings us to 367 AD. When they invented the zipper. No, this has nothing to do with zippers. In 367 AD, a church leader named Athanasius sent out the annual Easter letter that set the date for Easter that year. It changed every year. It's a very confusing holiday. And in his letter, he named all 27 books of the New Testament, and there was no disagreement. For the first time, all the church leaders agreed. God had helped them choose the books that carried his inspiration, and the canon of the New Testament was officially set. Rob, is that the cannon with my cookies? No, it's not, you crazy bird. And that's how the books of the New Testament were selected. See you next time. Bring me a cookie. Bring me a cookie. Thanks, Captain Pete. It's become popular lately to dig up some of these rejected writings with names like the Gospel of Thomas or the Letter of Barnabas and act like they're secret new discoveries. Some folks work them into exciting books and hit movies. I'm not naming any names, but their initials are Da Vinci Code. Oops, did I say that out loud? Then they claim there's been a cover-up and a conspiracy, and now the truth is out. There's no cover-up or conspiracy. Those writings have been around forever. They just didn't make it into the Bible because they didn't pass the test. They were from questionable sources, or they said things about Jesus that didn't fit with what the apostles taught, or even what Jesus taught about himself. But now we pretend it's a scandal because we want to sell a lot of books and movie tickets. It's hogwash! It's poppycock! And I won't stand for it! Well... I guess you won't be getting invited to the next Da Vinci Code premiere. Never mess with a Sunday school teacher. I'll keep that in mind. Best part of the night, right? So, plug for parents. Those of you in the room who have children at home, either, I'll even go as far as high school, um, how many of you at times are looking for materials that you could use, discuss with your children to discuss the Bible, help them learn more about it? That's probably every parent in the room. I would like to make a little plug for my friend Buck Denver. So the man you saw talking at the end of the video, if you're not familiar with him, his name is Phil Vischer. He's the man who invented VeggieTales. He was the creator of VeggieTales. And the project that Phil Vischer did after VeggieTales was the series called What's in the Bible with Buck Denver. There are 13 DVDs. Each DVD has two 30-minute lessons. And it is a Bible survey course. The idea is Phil Vischer, you just saw him talking with his puppets. And they start in Genesis. And they work through every book of the Bible all the way to Revelation. And it's just a high-level overview of what each book was, 
what its place is in the scriptures, why it was important, who wrote it, basic message of the book is pretty awesome. Uh, as far as a Bible survey course is concerned, I will unashamedly tell you this one, done with puppets, is the best thing I've ever seen. It's very accurate. I agree with about 95% of it. So for whatever it's worth, if you need a Desi Lugo endorsement, there you go, you have it. You can find these at the public library. If you want to own them, you can find them on Christian Book Distributor, Amazon, other places, etc. If you decide you want the set, I'd encourage you to go to a library first, get one, see if you like it. If you decide you like it, it's cheaper to buy the whole set than to buy them one at a time. But just a little plug and promo out there for the parents. Now, for the rest of you who do not have children and you're thinking, actually, that was pretty entertaining and I learned something. There is no shame in watching puppets. So if you want to go to the library at some time and find this series, What's in the Bible with Buck Denver? It's an excellent series. Doctrinally, we would only disagree with a few minor comments here or there. So parents, one other thing. This is not a babysitting tool. We own this. And I have watched it with my children all the way through twice. So you could do it 30 minutes at a time, each little episode, spread it over the course of a few months, and then discuss it with your children. So don't just pop it in and walk away. Sit there and watch it with them, and you may learn something, and it'll lead to some great family discussions. Or you could forget the kids altogether and just watch it yourself. <laughs> exactly. Now, you will notice in your notes, I do have a section talking about the canon. And I thought I could walk through that tonight. Or I could let Buck Denver and his friends do it, and I think they were more entertaining than I would have been anyways. The main takeaway when we talk about canon is the idea of author, content, and reception. Those three items are really what help determine quote-unquote canon. Who wrote it? What was the content? And how was it received by the church at large? If the author, the content, and the reception all lined up, then it was considered canon. I'll say one other thing on this before we kind of move on. There are some churches that teach, the Catholic Church in particular, that the canon was settled by the church, as in the official Holy Roman Catholic Church, by 367 AD, as you saw him make reference to in that video, and therefore, because they set the canon, quote-unquote, they are the authoritative body that determined what the scriptures are. If you paid attention to what was said in the video, what actually happened is that as these books were written, as they were preached and proclaimed, as they made their way across the New Testament, specifically, I'm talking about the New Testament, as they made their way across the Greco-Roman Greco, Greco Empire, I need to slow down a little, they were immediately accepted. People would receive these letters or copy them. They would recognize that they were written by the apostles or people who knew the apostles and that it was the inspired word of God, and they were immediately put into use. Keep in mind, there's no internet. There's no regular postal system. There's no printing press. These are handwritten copies that are being copied over and over and shared from church to church. Not everyone can read in a church, so you've got a few people probably in each local church who can read, and they would have received a copy, read it aloud to the church, and then they may get to keep that copy, or maybe they pass that copy along to the next church down the road. So it takes a while for this stuff to spread and to get around. But what we see, especially with the New Testament, 
is that these 27 books that we call the New Testament, these were the books that were immediately received and they were recognized and accepted by the church. They were preached. They were taught. There were not questions on it. They agreed with each other. If you have questions about other things you've heard, again, you're welcome to talk to me. They made reference to a few of them like the Gnostic Gospels. Maybe you've heard of that or the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Barnabas or the Gospel of Mary or these other books that have become popular in the last few years once again as if it's some brand new discovery. They're not. These books have been around for 2,000 years and they were immediately rejected as trash. Honestly, seriously, they were never taken seriously by the church at large and so they were rejected and said no that's not scripture but it's very cool and in vogue now to find these old documents and bring them back as if the church was trying to hide something and keep them out of the bible and that's not at all what the case was the old testament canon is really split up into three sections. I'm not going to talk so much about how we got the canon, but what is inside it. And this is important because we see these terms come up when we're reading the Gospels. And the three sections, at least for the Jews, the way they looked at the Old Testament, is what they would call the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These five books were immediately accepted. It was the law, or sometimes called the law of Moses. It was the basis for the Old Testament. Everything was built on top of that. When you read in the New Testament, and they talk about where it says in the law, this is what they're referring to. The next section was the prophets. The prophets received acceptance as they were written. So the canon grew over time as these different prophets wrote the words that God had given them. We also get hints in the Old Testament that these prophets kept some sort of ongoing record of the recognized prophetic writings. Let me give an example. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 25. It says, Then Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty, and he wrote it in a book and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. You can read in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles where it'll give a summary of something that happened historically, and it said, and you can also read, and it'll reference some other book that we don't have today, but we saw that they kept records somehow, and they, they had these other historical writings. What we consider to be the Old Testament is not the sum total of the collected Jewish writings. This is the scriptural writings. There are plenty of other books, plenty of other history books that have been preserved. And if you're curious and interested in them, you could go find them at a local bookstore or in a library. But these prophetic writings grew over time as God inspired these people to write. And over time, the Hebrew people recognized these as God's inspired word. Later prophets acknowledge former prophets the prophets sometimes quoted from each other. And then we see very specifically Daniel, who was a contemporary of Jeremiah, and he endorsed Jeremiah. He references Jeremiah's writings in his own. The continuity of the prophets seemed to stop with Malachi, who pointed to the next great prophet after him. This was fulfilled by John the Baptist. We know that John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this because Jesus said so. So it's kind of hard to argue with that. So Jesus said that John the Baptist was this great prophet that Malachi was looking forward to. 
The writings. What are the writings? The writings were originally considered part of the prophets, and they were recognized as part of the canon. But the threefold division of the Old Testament was kind of an organizational method. So you had the law, you had the prophets, and then the writings. We might call those the poetic books and some of the historical books. The Hebrew Bible, if you were to go pick one up, contains the same 39 books that we have and what we call our Old Testament. They're just organized in a different order. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it's the same 39 books. It's just organized a little bit differently. And these sections would be referred to as the law, the prophets, and the writings. Sometimes in the New Testament, they're collectively just referred to as the law and the prophets. We see Jesus in the gospel, in the gospels make reference to everything written in the law and the prophets. What he was saying is the entirety of the scriptures. That was a way for him to say, well, it'd be like us saying everything written in the Old Testament. For him, everything written in the scriptures, the law and the prophets. It's just a collective title for all of it together. When we get to the New Testament... The primary test for whether or not something really was scripture was its apostolic authority. Of the eight authors that we know of in the New Testament, five of them were recognized apostles and founders of the church, Matthew, John, Peter, Paul, and James. These five wrote 22 of the 27 books in our New Testament. The other five books of the New Testament were written by close associates of these apostles. Mark was likely Peter's son in the gospel. And when we read the gospel of Mark, we're likely reading Peter's recollection, his memories of his interactions with Jesus. Luke was a traveling companion of Paul and a close friend of his. He wrote Luke and Acts. Jude was a brother of James. And by the way, Jude and James were both half-brothers of Jesus. And then we have one book in the New Testament that is anonymous, and that's Hebrews. So we don't know who wrote Hebrews. And you can find all kinds of interesting theories about who wrote Hebrews, but at the end of the day, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. If you want to know my opinion, you can come talk to me later, and I'll share with you my opinion when we're not being recorded. But again, we don't know for certain. But what we do see is that the book of Hebrews is written very much in a style similar to Paul's writings. And whoever wrote Hebrews was an associate of Timothy. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23. So this person wrote in a very similar style to Paul. They knew Timothy. So likely it was another traveling companion or friend of Paul. Either way, the book of Hebrews was accepted as scripture. There wasn't really questions about that. And so people were very comfortable with that. And that kind of brings us to the end of our material tonight as we're talking about the idea of the text, the translation, and the canon. We've got about five to ten minutes before we close up. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to switch microphones. And if anybody has any questions on anything we talked about tonight, maybe it's a question you'd hopefully like to see answered in the next couple of weeks, I am welcome to taking a quick Q&A for a few minutes. Don't everybody flood me at once, huh? <laughs> Anybody have any questions about anything that we've said or talked about this evening? Want to come get the mic? You don't really want to. 
But you can do that, and then you can pass it if anybody else has anything. You mentioned the order of the books of the Bible. Um, can you share with us either tonight or maybe next week what the order the books were written in? What was the chronological? Is there a chronological okay. order? So good question. Let's talk about chronology because that gets a little bit difficult. And I'm going to ruin this for you right up front because the fair and candid answer is we don't know. When we get to the Old Testament, especially the Old Testament, we don't have dates on these books. Now you do have, and here's where it becomes a challenge. We do have what we call the historical books. We've got First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And so we see within those books lots of dates. We see historical facts that can be um, cross-checked with other historical records. So we can firmly date the events of those books. But that doesn't tell us when the book was written. Mm -hmm. It just tells us when the events in the book took place. Probably the oldest book in the Bible, narratively speaking, is Job. Probably some of the earliest written would be the Pentateuch. The prophets vary. Some of them we can narrow down. You can go to Isaiah, and he names specific kings that he served under. So you can get a very specific date range from when Isaiah was written. Other books like Joel have nothing in them at all that gives us any sort of chronological reference. And it's a wild guess when Joel was written. Accepted as scripture, we know it's God's prophetic word, but there's nothing within the text itself that specifically gives us a time period when Joel took place. So you can go buy a chronological Bible, and there's some value to looking at that. If you want to go to a bookstore, you can pick up a Bible. Just know up front, to be fair, it's a best guess, an educated guess, when these were written. You can get online and go to Google, and you can say chronological order of the Bible. And you can go to four different websites, and all four of them will disagree with each other. Because, again, it's a best educated guess when they were written. When we get to the New Testament, and we're looking at the chronology of the New Testament, event-wise, the Gospels take place first. Therefore, they're at the front of the New Testament. But when you read the New Testament, what we actually see is that Jesus gave his great commission. The apostles went out. They began to teach and preach and share the message of Jesus. And they did this for like 30 years, going everywhere, proclaiming the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. And at some point, they started to get old. And some of them started to die. And I'm reading a little between the lines, but at some point somebody said, you know, we should probably write this stuff down. And so they started writing down what we refer to as the Gospels. The Gospels were probably written in the 60s and the 70s, a good 30 to 40 years after the time of Jesus. What we call the epistles, the letters to the church, those were written much earlier. Think about the situation. The Apostle Paul is traveling. He's starting new churches. He's somewhere for a little while, and then he moves on, and he starts another church. And as he's traveling, and the same thing with Peter and John and James and the other apostles, they're sharing the gospel message of Jesus. They're proclaiming his good news. They're starting churches. Then Paul gets word back. Hey, remember that church you started down the road last year? Well, they've got questions about fill-in-the-blank subject. Paul can't get back to them right now. He can't correct what they've got questions about. So he writes a letter. We call it an epistle. And he gives instructions and sends it back. 
And the people receive this and they think, this is really good stuff. We should share this with other people. So they make a copy of that letter and they make a copy of it and they make a copy of it and it begins to spread around. And those are the epistles of the New Testament. So the epistles were actually what was written down first. And it was from a pastoral perspective as the apostles were giving instructions to these churches. Afterwards, when they are now old in age, they're writing down their memories and it's what we call the gospels. So gospels take place first, but they're written later. You follow me? Mm -hmm. And then we get to the New Testament end with the book of Revelation as we had Dr. Brickle here back in April and he was talking about likely the gospel of John the three epistles of John and the book of Revelation were all written by one author. If it's John the Revelator, John the Beloved, the same John who was a young man that we find in the Gospels, granted that's an if, they were probably written in the 90s and were the last books of the New Testament. So did that kind of answer your question? That did. That was good. The short version is I can't give you an exact list because nobody knows. <laughs> Right. Any other questions? Anybody else have any other thoughts or something they want to ask about? I'm coming, Debbie. Um, it occurred to me that when you were talking about Moses writing the law, did the Jews at that point being slaves, could they read and write? In general? It depends. So again, that's probably going to be my answer for everything. We think it depends, our best guess. So not everyone, you're right, being a slave nation, being a manual workforce, not everyone would have been able to read and write. Some of them, depending on their jobs, would have been able to read and write because their job required it. Okay. What we see across the ancient world, and the figures vary wildly, but as a general rule, we take literacy for granted. In America, the expectation is that everyone learns to read and write. It is not that way all over the world today, and it especially wasn't that way in the ancient world. As a general rule, they say that probably about 10%, 10% of the ancient world was able to read and write. That percentage would have been higher in the Jewish nation because of synagogue, because of their emphasis on learning Torah. And so the percentage of ethnic Jews in the ancient world who could read and write was higher than the other groups around them. It's kind of what they were known for. They were the people of the book, especially after the destruction okay. of the temple in 70 AD. Their whole culture kind of shifted away from a sacrificial system associated with temple worship to a focus on the book preservation of the book, reading and writing the book, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, back to your question, at the time of Moses, members of the nation would have been able to read and write, but it would not have been everyone. Okay. Would he, having been raised by the Egyptians, been more literate? Yes. Moses would have been highly educated. He was raised as a prince of Egypt. So God uniquely put him in a place to lead that nation. Okay. Um, he would have been much like the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, someone with a foot in both worlds. Yeah. Ethnically cool. Jewish, but really raised in another culture. Paul, very much a Jew, very highly educated as a Jew, but also a Roman citizen. 
also whose father was a business class merchant, who was raised outside of Judea, who was raised in the Roman world. So someone with kind of one foot in both worlds. I have time for one more question. There we go. Sister Julie in the back. Is there one Bible that's left out more scriptures than another, a translation? So the answer to that, the short answer is no. Now, I didn't go this deep tonight, and if you want to really dive into this, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards, but the short answer is that the King James Version, the New King James Version, are predominantly translated from the Codex Bizet and a specific set of Old Testament, well, rather New Testament manuscripts. The Old Testament manuscript, the Masoretic text is set. There's not argument on that. Within the New Testament, those 27 books, sometimes you may pick up a more modern translation, and you may find a few verses that are not directly in the body of text, but there's a few places where you may see a footnote, and then it's written down in a footnote, and it'll probably have some note that says something like, some early manuscripts do not contain this verse, something along those, and then it'll have that verse written down there. And that's because after the time of the authorship of the King James Version of the Bible. Keep in mind that's now 400 years old. It was written and finalized in 1611. So after that time, as we've continued to do archaeological digs, studies, etc., they have found more and more and more copies of the New Testament. And so the volume of these old manuscripts has gotten larger and larger and larger. And that's actually a good thing because we have more and more things that we can cross-check. There were several two, in particular, highly influential manuscripts of the New Testament that were found after the King James was written. These two manuscripts, by many people, are considered to be very important because they're very, very old. They're some of the oldest manuscripts that have ever been found. And what they found in comparing that to other manuscripts is there are a handful, and, I'm, and it's literally like a handful of places where there are a few verses that we have, say, in the King James that are not in those manuscripts. And so probably more out of an abundance of caution than anything else, just trying to be careful. They don't have those in the main body of the text. They have them in a footnote if they're using those Greek manuscripts as the primary point of translation. And then it'll have a note saying, some manuscripts do not contain fill-in-the-blank verse. Is that kind of what you were getting at? Sometimes, and if you have more technical questions, you're welcome to ask me afterwards. Sometimes I've heard people talk about, oh, fill in the blank translation. You know, they're changing the word of God. They're trying to remove X, Y, Z verse. And that's not true. That's a misunderstanding of a translation philosophy. It's a misunderstanding of the sources that were used and what they're trying to accomplish. But good question, though. All right, you have all been wonderfully patient. You've hung with me. I know it was a little more technical tonight. Everybody stand, and I'll dismiss in a quick word of prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for your inspired word. It's an incredible amount of work that has gone into preserving this scripture for us. And we are blessed today that we can pick it up and we can read it freely, and we can read it in multiple different ways, and we have many opportunities to understand it. I pray that we would not take it for granted and that we would recognize the incredible blessing that we have with it. 
We pray over the next few weeks that you would be with us and you would open our minds and our understanding so we can continue to learn and grow together as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen.